You are now listening to the January 29th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Nearer to My God to Thee, the sermon, and equipping the saints. First, let's begin with Nearer My God to Thee. from the program Near My God to Thee. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13 is a very well-known verse that says, And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Christianity is commonly known as the religion of love. That's how much love is the essence of Christianity. God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son for the world. As Jesus was ending his ministry here on earth, he said, Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Jesus told us to love one another just as he loved us by giving up his life. We have received that love and we will live by giving and sharing that love. There is a hymn about how our church members must treat each other. It's a hymn called Blessed Be the Tie That Binds, written by Pastor John Fawcett. In today's Nearer My God to Thee, we will introduce the hymn, Blessed Be the Tie That Binds, written by John Fawcett. Let's first listen to the hymn. Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love, the Here is the first verse. Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. John Fawcett was born in 1739 and became an orphan at the age of 12. He had an unfortunate childhood. To make a living at an early age, he worked as an apprentice in a tailor shop for 14 hours a day and at times did manual labor. Even in the midst of such hardship, he learned how to write and study diligently. When John Fawcett turned 16, he heard a sermon from the famous English evangelist George Whitfield and accepted the Lord. At the young age of 25, he was ordained as a pastor and began serving at a Baptist church in Waynescape. How did Pastor Fawcett end up writing the hymn Blessed be the tie that binds. We'll find out through a drama. A wagon was standing in front of a small Baptist church in the quiet English village of Wayne's Gate. Pastor John Fawcett and the church members were loading the wagon. It was the day when Pastor John Fawcett, who served this church in a small village for the past seven years, ended his ministry and was moving. 
Pastor John Fawcett recently accepted an offer from a large church in London to become their head pastor, and he was leaving today. A large church in London heard a sermon from this exceptional preacher and recruited him. A great opportunity came to Pastor John Fawcett. He was now able to go to a bigger church and preach God's word to more people. Therefore, Pastor Fawcett ended his ministry for the past seven years and left for London. When Pastor Fawcett finished loading the wagon, he held the people's hands and said his farewells. Pastor, when will we see you again? We're so sad that you're leaving. Yes, I'm sad as well, but I'm sure we'll be able to see each other again. Although we may not see each other here on earth, we will surely meet in heaven. Yes, of course, but we are still sad. We have placed food in the wagon for your journey. Please eat, since you will be traveling far and will surely get hungry. <gasps> Please, don't cry. If you cry like this, my heart is saddened. Among those who came to say farewell to Pastor Fawcett was a young couple who he married and children who he held in his arms while praying for them. Also, there were many elderly people who shared in the sadness and joy for the past seven years. While Pastor Fawcett was holding their hands and saying farewell, his heart began shaking. These people are so pure and have so much love. How can I leave these people and go to a big city for a new opportunity? The church members' love and faithfulness overwhelmed Pastor Fawcett. He held his tears and quietly began to unload his belongings. Pastor, what are you doing right now? Why are you unloading your belongings? Pastor, are you looking for something? Why are you unpacking your things? Because of your love, I don't think I could leave. I don't think it's my time to leave. Can I remain here at Wayne's Gate a little longer? Really? Yes, of course, Pastor. Everyone, let's hurry and unload. Pastor is not leaving. Pastor Fawcett thought about the overflowing love from the church members. He thought about each and every one of the members. Then, he began writing about his feelings towards his church members. Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. Pastor Fawcett, who unloaded his belongings, spent 54 years of his life in Wayne's Gate and spent his spiritual life with them until he passed away. Pastor Fawcett realized that it wasn't God's calling for him to minister at a large church. He realized that going to London was his own thought and his own greed. Therefore, he turned from his greedy thoughts and determined to spend the rest of his spiritual life with those that God had already entrusted to him. Pastor Fawcett devoted his life to have a sincere relationship with each one of his church members so that they may grow in the Lord. Blessed be the tie that binds our heart in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. He lived out this lyric in his life. I hope we could reflect upon how we could have genuine, heartfelt relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Are we earnestly sharing our love with those brothers and sisters on earth whom we'll spend eternity with in heaven? I'll see you next week. From near my God to thee.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary Phoenix in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is the cornerstone. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. We are just going verse by verse now through the book of Acts. Nothing fancy, you know, it's just like home meals, you know, home cooking. Uh, and we're all coming to the table, and we're going to feed on the Word of God. So that's what we're doing, and I, I hope you've got your Bible here so you can open with me to the book of Acts. I'm going to set the stage again. Peter and John have been preaching. It got the attention when, when so many people got saved of the religious leaders. The Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish, the equivalent of the Jewish Supreme Court, caught wind of this. They wanted to bring charges against Peter and John. So they arrested them. They put them in jail. And now the morning has come and we're kind of in the middle of the Sanhedrin composed of 70 elders and the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And they are uh, surrounding them in this big horseshoe kind of shaped amphitheater, and here is uh, Peter and James in the middle of this with everybody looking at them. So it's kind of intimidating. Verse 7, and when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or what name did you do this? Now, when you see when it says, by what power or what name, uh, the word power can mean authority, they're basically saying, uh, under whose jurisdiction did you do this? Who gave you permission to heal this guy? Which I think is just kind of an odd question to ask. But they're trying to, to do the power move. You know, is it a lesser authority than ours? And it says, it goes on to say, 
in uh, verse 8. And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, I just want to look at this being filled with the Holy Spirit. When we are saved, the Holy Spirit comes in us. Everybody understand that? And he dwells in us forever. We can't, he can't, he's not going to leave us. He seals us for salvation. He's the guarantee. The guarantee is in us, not my hand. I could drop it. But the guarantee of salvation is in us. Now, once we are saved, the Holy Spirit will come upon us, or it speaks in the Bible, been filled with the Holy Spirit, and that is when the Holy Spirit comes upon us to give us a special boldness and power to accomplish something for God. And so it says, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. The word filled is in a tense that means it's not once and forever, but it's happening this time at this specific time. And so uh, let me start with verse 9, or verse 8. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. That is gutsy, amen? He's standing in front, this very intimate, it's supposed to be intimidating. He's standing in the midst of this, looking at the people who condemned Jesus to death. Not only is he thinking, oh, they, con- they condemned Jesus, what about me? There, he's looking at him, he's convicting him, he said, you crucified him, but God raised him from the dead. Now, I hadn't seen this before, but it's something I want to share with you guys. They didn't question that. The Pharisees didn't question God raised him from the dead. The Sadducees, another religious denomination there, that didn't believe in the resurrection, didn't question Jesus' resurrection either. There wasn't a, hey, what are you talking about? He didn't rise from the dead. He didn't. They're silent. Why? Well, I believe that uh, they realize uh, there are too many people who have seen him alive. There's too many witnesses here that (laughs) it's without uh, a doubt. Because obviously they could have trotted Jesus' dead body in and said, hey, Peter, John, shut up. There's nothing to your message. But do you see? They didn't say that. They, they had to acknowledge it. It's what I see in here. You know, Their silence is saying uh, a lot. Well, Peter quotes next a passage from Psalm 118 to show how important Jesus is to the plan of God. He says, this Jesus, oh, pause. We got to get Jewish here. Can you get Jewish with me? Get Jewish? Okay. We're not first century Jews, so we don't have the background. So I got to explain it. There, There was an idea that the Messiah would be a rock. He would be a stone. Daniel 2 talks about the Son of God coming to earth like a rock and kind of exploding on the earth. So the Messiah was going to be a rock. Psalm 118, the prophecy says, for the 
the, the chief cornerstone. It would be the stone that the, real, the builders rejected. So Peter's going to bring this up and he say, hey, let me give you the messianic context for this. Let me tell you how this applies to Jesus. So that's kind of where we want to be. So he says, this Jesus is a stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Some says the chief cornerstone. Peter is now appealing to a tradition about the construction of Solomon's temple. When Solomon's temple, uh, according to this, you know, Solomon's temple, uh, when it was built, could not have a, a hammer, a chisel working on the temple mount. It's supposed to be in complete silence, which means it had to be prefab, so to speak. All these giant limestone blocks had to be pre-cut. They had to be labeled so that they could just be put into place silently as they come up to the mount. Well, um, one stone came up, and the builders didn't know what to do with it, so they um, just rolled it down into the uh, valley of Gehenna. Gehenna was the place where centuries before Jews sacrificed their babies to the god Molech. They would burn their babies. Horrible, a horrible place. It was now a place where garbage was thrown and the garbage was burned and carcasses of dead animals were decomposing. It's just a horrible, stinking, fiery place. And by the way, the Bible refers to hell as Gehenna, all right? So they would roll the stone, this stone, down into Gehenna, where the stone got all, you know, lost in the debris, the stench, the death, the fire. And then, you know, the, the engineer in the quarry said, uh, we sent that stone to you. What kind of stone is it? They said, we're missing the cornerstone. What? They said, we don't know where it is. Well, we sent it to you. And then somebody says, oh, yeah, you know, that was a stone that got, it must have been the stone that got rolled down into Gehenna. Bring it up here in the place of honor that it deserves. Now, do you see the similarity, Right. The Messiah, he is the cornerstone. He was rejected by the builders, his people, Israel. He experienced the shame. He experienced death. But he's he's been raised from the dead, and now he is seated at the place of glory and honor. That's That's what Peter is saying. So his Jewish listeners, they would understand where he's going with this. In fact, some of them might have gone, oh, wow. This seems to fit Jesus. I want to see, uh, look at the cornerstone for a minute. The cornerstone determines that the entire building is built correctly, right? If the cornerstone is off, all the walls will be what? They'll off. It won't be square. So the cornerstone has to be perfect, and then you build off that. The chief cornerstone of Israel had been flawed. They were building off a flawed system. And so no wonder the walls, so to speak, weren't built right. The system wasn't working. And so Jesus came, the real cornerstone, so that things could be literally straightened out, 
This is a point I want us to think about. Unless you have Jesus as a cornerstone of your life, your life will never straighten out. Now, Peter presses the point home with this powerful conclusion. He declares that Jesus is the only way of salvation. I mean, again, think of the crowd he's before. This Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Amen? We'll look at that a little bit more later. In verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. This doesn't mean that Peter and John were ignorant. It means that they, they didn't have the education that the, Pharise- the Sadducees offered. You see, the Sadducees considered themselves the teachers. And if you didn't have a degree from Sadducee Theological Seminary, You didn't know anything. In fact, you had no right really talking. Peter has so much courage. uh, It says uh, in the next verse, but seeing um, that, verse 14, that the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. What do you do? How do you, as religious leaders, condemn a good deed? Our accusation is you healed a man who's been paralyzed for 40 years. His entire life has been paralyzed. We've been walking by him every day and giving him a handout. We accuse him of healing him. Okay. All right. Sorry. There's no accusation that they could bring against uh, Peter and and John. So uh, they let them go. They said... um, Uh, verse 15, when they had commanded them to leave the council, now they confer with one another. Now they have their closed-door meeting, saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we can't deny it. We can't, you know, keep it under wraps. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, see, they're afraid of the people. Because as we said said last week, there, there weren't a few believers in Jerusalem. There were tens of thousands of believers in Jerusalem at this point. So public opinion would not be with the Sanhedrin. They don't want to shake things up anymore and have their positions basically dissolved. So now they have to think about this politically. Now, what can we do? It's a notable miracle. All the people know it's a notable miracle. We can't deny it. Verse 17, but in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Here's something else I was thinking about I'd not thought of before. I'm going to share it. The, how does Luke know what was said in that meeting? It was a closed-door conference, you guys. It, it, 
Peter and John were there. No other disciples were there. How do how does Luke know to tell us what they said in there? Well, hey, this is what I'm thinking. This will make sense. There was most likely a guy named Saul who was a Pharisee who was part of the Sanhedrin who was there and was part of that discussion. That Saul later became the apostle Paul. And so Paul is the guy who tells Luke and the others, hey, you know what our conversation was? It was so crazy we were thinking something like that. And in fact, we said, don't talk at all in the name of Jesus. And look at what I'm doing now. I'm all over the world as a missionary preaching Jesus. How ironic, right? So they tell them not to speak at all in the name of Jesus. But... Peter and John answered them. This, we haven't heard John talk a lot, but obviously he was because it says Peter and John answered them. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot speak of what we have seen and heard. I love it. He put him in a double bind, didn't he? Is it right? In the sight of God, to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. Well, what do they have to say? Huh? Listen to God. And then they add, for we cannot stop speaking of what we have seen and heard. Seen and heard, seen and heard. We are witnesses, seen and heard. We're witnesses. You see, the early apostles and disciples, they were all witnesses of the risen Jesus Christ, and they couldn't keep quiet. The message of the church is that Jesus died, was buried, he rose from the dead, and he transforms life. So throughout the book of Acts, we're going we're gonna to see the apostles say, and we saw it with our own eyes, and we're willing to die for this. We saw it with our own eyes. We saw him alive. We saw the fact We cannot but speak what we have seen and heard. They're setting the example for the church for the next 2,000 plus years. They're setting the example that we are loyal to God first and foremost. God first, government second. God first, government second. If it comes that we would have to choose between God and between God and government, then we go with God. Now, if there's any way that we can maintain a relationship with government, we do that because the Bible says we need to be subject to the governing authorities. We need to honor and respect them and pray for them. So if there's any way that there can be conciliation, that's good. But if it's a point where we cannot, to honor God and obey God, go along with government, then we it goes without saying, we go with God. They were too filled with Jesus to worry about what somebody was thinking. H.G. Wells said, the trouble with so many people is that the voice of their neighbors sounds louder in their ears than the voice of God. The trouble with many people is the voice of their neighbors, public opinion, 
pressure, peer pressure, speaks louder in their ears than the voice of God. Always hear the voice of God. Listen for the voice of God. Let's read on and see how the believers reacted during this dangerous time. First of all, there there are four things. I'm sorry. First of all, note takers, take note. (laughs) During a hard time, they remembered the power of God. Okay? The power of God. Now, I got to tell you, none of this is going to be like, you know, oh, I've never heard this before, probably for most of us. But we're being reminded of what help the early church. And, you know, if it helped them, it's going to help us, right? First of all, they remembered the power of God. Look at verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, everybody, the church around them, when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. We'll just stop there. The first thing they acknowledged during a time of trouble and distress was, God, you are powerful. You created the... Think about it. He created the world and the universe with a breath. Effortlessly. (gasps) Can he take care of this stuff in my life? What? See... Yeah, I'm thinking the same thing. I got all this stuff. And I think, wait a minute. The one who said, light be, quick, quicker than I could just say that, and light was, he can take care of my problems. Amen. He can work them out. He can take care of our issues. They can seem really big, really challenging. But gang, remember that nothing can come through to you that has not first passed through the permissive will of God. The Bible is clear of that. The Apostle Paul says, know this, that no temptation, and that word, thelipsis, can mean temptation, trial, trouble, suffering. No temptation, trial, suffering can come to you except through God. No temptation can overtake you except it goes through God first, except by the will of God. So always know what you are in the midst of is not more than you can bear. It's all been filtered through the Lord and through his will. So God is powerful. We all got that so I can move on? Okay, God is powerful. Now, the next thing that we see, we see him say is that it's futile to rebel against God. They realize the futility of rebelling against God. I see that in the next verse. Verse 25. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, that implies that David's words are inspired by God, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? He's still quoting Psalm 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah 
For truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. He says, don't forget the futility of fighting against God. He's quoting, kind of paraphrasing Psalm 2, which basically is talking during the time of the millennium, when people after the millennium uh, try to rebel against Christ. And the Bible says that God sits and laughs at them. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all what? Boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with what? Boldness. You see, that's boldness, 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 boldness in this chapter. That's what we need to share the word of God. How did they do it? They were filled. They asked, God, fill me with the Holy Spirit. How many times have we known that this is a time when I need to speak up about Jesus? I know sometimes, you know, it it just isn't. We know that. Sometimes we need to say something and we wimp out. Has anybody had that happen to them? I like this. Some questions, it's others, it's... Guys, we're all in the same boat. We know that. We're, we're all together. We're, there's no extra holy people here. So um, we pray, Father, give me boldness. Fill me with the Holy Spirit. And God says, no, I'm not going to do that. Now, what's he always going to answer that prayer? If we pray anything according to his will, we're going to have the answer to that prayer the Bible promises. And if we pray that God fills us with the Holy Spirit and gives us boldness, he's going to do it. And it might mean you have to stop and open your mouth, and then God will give you boldness. And you'll think, what am I saying right now? Or at the end, I can't believe I said that. Where did I get that? From the Holy Spirit. Isn't that cool? And the place where they were praying was what? Shaken. What does it mean? There was an earthquake. I want us to go back to chapter, verse 12 just for a moment. I was coming back and saving it for the end. There's a few things to point out here. Verse 12 says, And there is salvation in what? No one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the only way today. He's the only way. But this can light people up. I mean, they stumble on statements like this. They say, that's intolerant. But is it? Often people react and say, this is narrow-minded, intolerant of other belief systems. Listen, people often confuse the quality of tolerance for different points of view with the freedom to say that those things are wrong. Why should you believe in Jesus? Because he is the only way to heaven. It's not narrow. It's not bigoted. I'll tell you why. Because the Bible says Jesus is the only way and only those who believe in him will go into heaven. But the Bible also says very inclusive, that the Bible says 
whoever will can come. It isn't whoever is on this certain path or whoever is over here doing that. The Bible invites everyone to come to Jesus so that they can be saved. It's an exclusive thing, yes, but it's very inclusive. Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast away. Come on. Whoever comes to me, I'll never cast away. We'll talk more about this in a second, but I want to talk about what this means to believers. If we believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven, and if we believe that there is a real eternal heaven and there is a real eternal hell, then what are we doing about that? What are, where are we going with this? If we love people, and you are people who love other people, what are we doing about people going to hell? Second after second after second, there are millions of people dying to go to hell every day. What are we doing about it? If we really believe that, are we giving our money to help a missionary or a mission or an outreach? We invest our time and money in something we are invested in, something we believe. You know that. If you bought into something, you invest in it. If you bought into something, you're willing to sacrifice it, to spend time supporting that. Just saying. And if we really believe that people are dying and going to hell, then we're going to support an institution, mission. We're going to support a church that's supporting it because we believe there is help. And I can't go. I'm here. I can't go out, but I can stay here and do what I can do. I, you, you might not, I'm not a go feed the homeless guy, okay? That's not me. I'm not woven that way. I'm willing to do something different, but I can support that. And what I give, every single tithe goes, I know, to help support that. So I'm not there, but I'm there, and God's going to say, you know what? You're going to get some of that reward, just like if you had been there when you stand before me. If somebody had to pay for the bread, the sandwiches, the Bibles, all of that goes into that. You following me? Yeah. So if we really believe this, come on, let's just not sit there passively. Oh, yeah, people are going to heaven. People are dying. If that's important, that almost be the most important thing. And forget about this arguing about crud. So I'm encouraging these folks because they believe Jesus is the only way. And right now, they're praying for people who aren't, haven't found Jesus as the only way. But you're here, and you've heard this, and you're realizing there is truth, and I've not been walking in the truth, and I need to give my life to Jesus. And you know what? I don't believe I need to talk you into anything. I think you've heard enough, and I really, at this point, think you know enough to take the next step and to put your, put your faith in Jesus Christ and say, I surrender you are right, I've been wrong. And to come to Jesus just as you are, I mean, how else can you come? Come to him just as you are, with all your stuff, with all your baggage, it's okay. 
He will not condemn you. He's accepting, he's loving, he's forgiving, he's restoring, and he'll do that for you. He promises that over and over and over again. This is what we're going to do. The Bible said, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That just means you're crying out to God. You're praying. If you cry out to God, because there's no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. If you call out to Jesus, he'll save you. It's not an accident you're here. That doesn't happen. It's not a coincidence. It's a divine appointment today. So I want us to bow our heads. I want us to pray. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to give you that opportunity to ask Jesus to save you. And he will. Father, we thank you for your word, for the word of truth. You stir us up by it. You convict. You convert. And right now, Lord, there are There are many that have come in here and realize it's time to make a real commitment to you. They've understood the truth and they know enough to now surrender and let you come in and let the cornerstone set things right. Just want to talk to you a minute before we pray. You've come in here, you might have throughout the message just kind of felt those twinges of, oh, 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 and that's God just convicting you. That's good. And right now you feel kind of emotional. You know what? God stirs it up, and you may be feeling that. Or maybe, you know, you just understand this in your head, and you know it's right, and you think with your head, that's, that's good too. But you know, this is the time. This is the divine appointment for you. Whether it comes another time, I don't know. But the door is open right now. And Jesus said, if you'll open the door, he'll come in. He'll welcome you. So I'm going to ask you to pray a simple prayer with me. Don't pray it out loud, but you pray it with all your heart. Father in heaven, thank you for loving me and for sending Jesus to die for all the wrong things that I have done. I am sorry for my sins. I'm sorry for my rebellion. I believe that Jesus died for me, that he was buried, that he rose from the dead, And that he is calling me to himself right now. Please give me a brand new start, a new beginning. I'm asking Jesus to be my Savior and my Lord. Please keep your heads bowed, your eyes closed. People around you are praying for you. My guess is you've never had this many people in one place ever praying for you. Jesus said something interesting. He says, if you will acknowledge me before people, I will acknowledge you before my Father who is in heaven. But if you will not acknowledge me, then basically he says it's not real. Jesus wasn't ashamed to die for you openly and publicly on a cross. He says, don't be ashamed to follow me. So I'm going to ask you to do something bold. 
Wherever you are right now, I'm not going to ask you to come up and come down to the front, but wherever you are right now with people praying for you, I want you to raise your hand good and high. You say, I prayed that prayer. Mark, I prayed that prayer. Keep your hand up good and high. I can't quite see. I see you, and I see you, and I see you. Someone's giving you a little packet right now. Don't be, I see you over here. Keep your hands up. I'd like to acknowledge you and you. Anyone else? Yes, you're up front. Anyone else? You might have thought, ah, I should have raised my hand. I didn't. Well, just put it up right now. It's okay. I want to pray for you. Father, we thank you that you've promised that whoever comes to your son has eternal life and will not come into judgment. Thanking you for these men and women who have made the most important decision of their life. Now, I ask that they'll grow on, they'll move forward, and stay in fellowship with your people in your church. In Jesus' name, And everybody said, amen. Praise the Lord. Exalted, he is exalted on high, he is exalted for great is the Exalted, he is exalted, blessing and honor, glory and power unto the Lord be praised, sing with a chorus resounding Exalted, he is exalted on high, he is exalted.
Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries has opportunities for anyone to volunteer in editing, producing the program, or even reviewing broadcasts at our office. You don't have to be an expert. We are excited to teach anyone that is willing to learn. If you are interested in learning how to be an editor, producer, or even a reviewer, please contact us at 602-866-8999 or email us at heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. The following program is called Equipping the Saints, provided by ETS Ministry. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11. That's in the middle of your Bibles, basically. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves. Even as a father, the son in whom he delights. How blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. Jonah should have known that, right? Jonah should have understood that. We see that God has not changed in the way he works with his people. Hebrews chapter 12, we went through this about two months ago. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5, I'll read it for you. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. You've forgotten. He's going to say, you've forgotten the word of God. You forgot. My son, he's going to quote that passage we just read in Proverbs. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son he receives. It is for discipline you endure. It's for this training through the difficulties God brings on you that you endure. He says, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, which all you have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we might share in his holiness. Jonah is a wicked, disobedient, unfaithful prophet, and God is disciplining him that he might share in his holiness, because the Lord God loves Jonah. But it doesn't take away the fact that Jonah is being disobedient and will suffer the consequences. 
Jonah was brought to within an inch of his life. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you were fearing for your life. This is what is happening. They recognize in reality around them that it is quite possible, as the captain would say later on, that we will perish. And Jonah is being disciplined by the Lord. And let me ask you, maybe some of you have great storms in your life right now. Whatever, it's relational, financial, work, whatever. Have you examined your life to see if you're disobeying God or not? I'm not talking about generalized flesh-centered disobedience, which we should be putting off and putting on Christ instead. I'm talking about have you removed yourself from the sphere in which God has called you to serve him, which is the body of Christ, that we might be built up through the word of God, considering others as more important than ourselves, serving one another, speaking his truth to one another, thus having a body that is equipped going into the world. Have you removed yourself from that? Maybe the great storm around you is because of that, and God loves you like he loves Jonah. And he disciplines those he loves that we might share in his holiness. Could the Lord be responsible? Could it be the Lord that has thrown this upon you? Could he be through his word declaring to you he is responsible? But he is compassionate. And it's the best thing for the long run, as we will see for Jonah also, that we might share in his holiness. So then God's heavy disciplinary hand is on Jonah, and the consequences we're going to see extend beyond Jonah to everyone around him. Let's look at some responses now from those on the ship. We're going to see two different responses. We'll take a first look and see at Jonah's response, then the the response of the sailors and the captains, which really reveal how messed up Jonah is and maybe how messed up we are. First of all, let's take a look at Jonah's apathetic, uncaring response. Verse 4, Jonah chapter 1. And the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm in the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Verse 5. Then the sailors became afraid. These are seasoned sailors. This is what they do for a living, and they're afraid. And they threw the cargo which was on the ship to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship and lain down and fallen asleep. The sailors are scared to death crying out, as we see, to their own personal pagan deities, throwing cargo in the sea. The storm is so bad, the ship's about to break up and go down. Jonah goes down literally to the sides of the ship, and we see ultimately he's asleep in the midst of a supernatural storm. At its core, we have divine displeasure. But Jonah had gone below into the hold and ship and laid down and fallen asleep. And as we see a similar passage where there was a storm on Galilee and Jesus went down and went to sleep, but it is totally different because Jesus is the one who is sovereign over the wind and the waves, therefore he has no worry at all. But Jonah here we're going to see falls asleep because he does not care. He doesn't care about the others. He doesn't care about himself. He doesn't care about obeying the Lord. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, laying down and fallen asleep. Do you see the absurd contrast here with human beings? I'm not speaking about the Son of God who is in control of all things and then the sailors in Mark, but I'm speaking about men here who are in the midst of a possibility of dying and the sailors are throwing things over. They're frantically trying to survive and Jonah goes down in the belly of the ship and falls asleep. There's a contrast here. 
Jonah is exhibiting one of the wrong responses he is commanded and was commanded in Proverbs not to have. And we are commanded. Do not reject the discipline of the Lord. Or even we see it in Hebrews 12. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Don't take it in a nonchalant fashion when the Lord hurls discipline on you. But don't faint either. Because God is doing a good thing. The point is, respond to that discipline. But Jonah has forgotten the word. Jonah has forgotten God's word. Or he is rejecting it. Now on a side note, let me clearly relay the biblical truth which is denied in so many churches these days. That God would never be displeased with his children. God is displeased with Jonah here. Yes, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But we can grieve him as we see in the book of Ephesians. And God certainly reveals his displeasure in the context of discipline on the prophet Jonah here. We can grieve him with our behavior as believers. There's no condemnation. But we are to walk in a manner worthy. Now, not only is Jonah apathetic concerning the storm, later on we're going to see he clearly recognizes it is because of him. He is unconcerned. Later on, he basically admits it's because of me. But he is down sleeping to the point where he doesn't care if everyone else perishes on this ship. He is so self-centered and selfish. And we need to see that contrast in chapter 1. Now, some of you are saying, boy, I'm glad God isn't writing about my life. Maybe you're not saying that. But what would God write about if he was writing about your life? Would it be portrayed like Jonah? Or would it be portrayed like someone who is faithful? A faithful servant. Good understanding produces favor, but the way of the unfaithful is hard. It's a hard road to go when you are unfaithful and you are God's servant. Okay, so Jonah is apathetically Sleeping and he is sinfully unconcerned. This is what happens when we become self-centered and self-focused. We just think about ourselves. But God's a good God. He's not going to let Jonah stay there. And he's not going to let you stay there. He is going to hurl these things upon us as he has declared in his word. If we are truly his children, we will be disciplined. We will be educated and chastised. Now, what's the cruise response here? Verse 4. And the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea that the ship was about to break up. Verse 5. Then the sailors became afraid, and here's what their response was. Every man cried out to his God. You know what? These guys, no matter how much they may or may not have been following their gods before, they're crying out right now. This is their response. They're crying out to each one's God. First of all, they were afraid, and what did they do? Every man cried to his God. In a pagan culture such as ours today, we see a multiplicity of idols or gods, and people evidently chose the one they liked the best, their own. Each man cried to their own God. They evidently recognized that this situation was beyond their ability to survive, and they needed supernatural help. When it comes down to it, there are really no atheists, just idolaters. Now they're crying out to their gods, and Jonah is sleeping. Now we have an inquiry of Jonah, which reveals the depths of his spiritual dullness. He's sleeping, they're crying out to their gods. Verse 6, so the captain approached him 
and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. We're about to perish. Literally, it says in the Hebrew, the chief of the sailors, he's the captain. He goes down and asks Jonah the obvious question, wakes him up. How is it you are sleeping? How in the world could anyone be sleeping in the midst of this? The only way someone could be and not be worried about it is if they were God. And we saw that with Christ, right? Because he's in control, Mark 4. But Jonah's not God. How is it that you are sleeping? Again, we have insight into Jonah's spiritual dullness and lethargy. He's not responding to God's discipline. Maybe some of us are like Jonah. Maybe some of you are like Jonah. God has placed you in a terrible storm and you are spiritually asleep. How is it you are sleeping? How is it you are so unaware and unconcerned of what God has brought upon you? How is that the case? Deep sleep. What does the captain say? End of six. Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned. Jonah, you're not concerned. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Again, when it gets down to it, these people recognize they needed to go beyond themselves to something supernatural. And they were going to have everybody in the boat call on their gods. Arise, he says, and call on your God. Interesting use of words. The Lord says, arise and go to Nineveh. Jonah arose and went to Tarshish on his way. The captain comes down, arise and call on your God. Because they're about to perish. So that we will not perish. End of six. Now notice the sailors continue their frantic attempts, verse 7. And each man said to his mate, come let us cast lots so that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. They're trying everything. They're crying out to God. They're trying to figure out maybe someone has offended their gods or whatever it is. And God is mad. They recognize it is supernatural. God is laying this upon them. They don't know which God or what God it is yet. But they want to figure it out. So they cast lots. And the lot fell on Jonah, end of seven. God's providence, the lot fell on Jonah. Can you picture the scene? Huge storm, about to perish. Everyone is crying to their gods. Jonah goes to sleep. Captain goes down to call on him. In amazement, he is sleeping. How could he be sleeping in the midst of this? Now, probably at the same time, the sailors are trying to figure out who's done this. They're casting lots, and the lot falls on Jonah. So the sailors now begin their inquiry of Jonah in the midst of their panic and fear. And we see a rapid firing of questions at Jonah at this point after the lot falls on him. Verse 8. Then they said to him, tell us now. It's emphatic. Tell us now. You can imagine all these sailors in this ship that's about to go down surrounding Jonah going, tell us now. On whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? Where did you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? Just a side note. Jonah's going to say who he is. He says to them, verse 9, And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. (gasps) I fear the God who made this. Oh, boy. The sailors in the midst of a supernatural storm, they know they're perishing. And Jonah says, this is the God I fear, the one who made the sea and the dry land. Jonah's got correct theology here, but his heart is far from the right place, folks. 
And as I was going to share earlier, on a side note, have you ever noticed how God doesn't let you blend in with non-believers if you're a true believer? You can't be a secret Christian for long. Often God sovereignly uses the queries of non-believers to reveal what we really believe and who we trust. Jonah was not going to let this out, but they got it out of him. I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Jonah admits it only after being questioned. Now notice the sailor's response, verse 10. Then, this is boom, boom, boom action in the Hebrew language. Then the men became extremely frightened. And they said to him, how could you do this? Now, we see an explanation at this point. For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Obviously, in the midst of the line of questioning, Jonah said in some fashion, I'm fleeing from the Lord. And they say, how could you do this? Maybe God's saying to you, how can you do this? He's called you to serve his body. He's called you to walk in a manner worthy. And you're walking somewhere else. You've escaped where God has called you to serve because it displeases you. How could you do this? Well, the passage here shows us that at times our discipline does not just affect us, it affects those around us. There is collateral damage from Jonah's sin here, folks. How could you do this? Maybe some of you are not obeying the Lord. You're fleeing the spheres in which God has called you to serve. You're never around church. You're never around the body. And the storms around you are affecting those around you. I'm not saying that to make you feel guilty. I'm saying that if in your heart of hearts you know it's true, then just confess it and say, Lord God, not my will, but thy will be done. Because it's always a blessing to serve the Lord no matter how hard it is. But good understanding produces favor, but the way of the unfaithful is hard. It's hard to go the other way. And God's a good God to make it hard because he loves us. How could you do this? Verse 11, now they realize it's Jonah's fault, basically, because he's fleeing from God, the one who made the seas. Verse 11, so they said to him, what should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. Okay, Mr. Hebrew, running from God, who made the sea, which is about to cause us to perish. What do we do? What's Jonah's answer? Verse 12, and he said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Verse 12. Then the sea will become calm for you because I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. He knows. This is amazing, and it gives incredible insight into the mindset of a disobedient servant. I'm struck with the depth of his disobedience, and we are all tempted to do the same, folks, and the consequences. He says, throw me in the sea, and it will stop. It's because of me. It's amazing he doesn't say... I repent and repent to the Lord at that moment and say, turn around. I'm going to Nineveh to obey the Lord. He says, throw me in the sea. It's amazing. He doesn't repent. Pick me up. Throw me in the sea. I'd rather die than obey God the way he wants me to obey. It's really sad. Because I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. He knows Jonah understood rightly, as maybe some of you do, that he was being disciplined. But he wasn't responding to that discipline. He was still self-centered and self-focused, so unlike God. I'd rather die than obey God, he's basically saying. 
Later on, we'll see in chapter 4, he's saying, I'd rather die than see the Ninevites be saved because I hate them so much. They're so wicked.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.